0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
0: You're
2: listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 38. I'm Chris Webster.
1: And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we talked to author Justin Jacobs about his book, Indiana Jones and History, From Pompeii to the Moon.
2: Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. April, how's it going?
1: It's going pretty well. I'm excited about today's show.
2: Awesome, awesome. Well, let's get Justin introduced. Justin Jacobs is an associate professor of history at American University. His PhD came from the University of California, San Diego, and is in modern Chinese history. He conducts research on the history of archaeological expeditions with a particular focus on the Silk Road expeditions of Western archaeologists in northwestern China during the first three decades of the 20th century. He is the author of Xinjiang and the Modern Chinese State. His next book, The Compensations of Plunder, How China Lost Its Treasures, is in the works now. The current book we're going to talk about is Indiana Jones in History from Pompeii to the Moon and was published in 2017 by Pulp Hero Press. For a companion video series to this book, if you maybe want to pause and go listen to that or go listen to it later, it's pretty great. Um, Check out the show notes and the link to a 21-part video series on Justin's YouTube channel. And I'll have to admit, um, you know, it's a good uh, substitute if you don't get to read the entire book. But because he lists exactly what chapters you need at the very end. (laughs) (laughs) exactly what videos you need at the end of each chapter. And it really does help kind of solidify everything that you just read. I really like that. So Justin, how's it going?
3: I'm great. Thanks for having me on.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's first, you know, let's talk about the premise of this book. You know, I've, I've read the book and, uh, and it's, I thought it was really good, very insightful. And we're going to talk about that shortly, but what is the book basically about for those that aren't familiar with it yet?
3: The book is basically about, everything that occurred on archaeological expeditions and excavations that was not directly concerned with the artifact itself what i wanted to understand is you know during the 200 years or so in which you have western explorers and archaeologists going to non-western lands and bringing back artifacts i want to understand their ideological motivations for doing so and the practical mm-hmm. the practical logistics of how they obtained artifacts and then transported them across the world and and deposited them in a museum. Um, So I often say that what I'm interested in is everything except for what the archaeologists themselves thought was the most (laughs) important part of their excavations.
2: Well, that's great. And I want to talk about your motivation for writing it and parallel that with, I guess, probably every archaeologist I know of a certain age's experience is, I mean, Indiana Jones. Come on, Uh, Indiana Jones. I was alive. uh, What was it? Uh, I was very young when the first movie came out. What was the year it came out? 1981. 1981. I was six years old. I, so I was one year old. <laughs> nice. Nice. I believe I kissed my first girlfriend.
1: I, I was a firm negative two.
2: So. <laughs> negative two. Negative two. I believe I kissed one of my first girlfriends in uh, while well, watching Temple of Doom or something like that. We went like to the dollar theater. I'm pretty sure of all the Indiana Jones movies, that would be the least <laughs> right? that would be the least romantic one to kiss during. Well, that's why we were kissing. Who wanted to watch the movie? Trying
1: to rip out her heart. It's <laughs> okay.
2: That's true. <laughs> so, what was your motivation behind writing this book?
3: Well. sort of long-term motivations and short-term motivations. Sort of from a long-term perspective, like you, Indiana Jones was pretty much, hands down, the coolest thing in my entire childhood. Growing up, they were the most exciting movies. I used to get chills and shivers just thinking about them and watching them. And so when I went to grad school, I remember, you know, being told you have to do a research project. And I was terrified that, you know, real research projects can go on for years and years. And I thought, If this goes on for years and I lose interest in my topic, that's going to be a disaster. (laughs) So I thought, (laughs) what sort of topic can I think of that will ensure that there's no way that topic could ever get boring? Um, And so I was thinking, oh, Indiana Jones, of course, that can never get boring. But the problem was, is that I was in a program for modern Chinese history, so I asked the question. Well, how can I translate Indiana Jones to China? I knew that there had been explorers who had gone to China, and so I thought, well, if I need a Chinese angle on this, how about I'll first look into what the Chinese themselves thought about foreign explorers who came into their land and took stuff away. Um, so that's sort of how my research interest in all of this got started. Um, and as I started to uncover really surprising findings, I mean, I found out uh, in a nutshell that the Chinese in the beginning uh, pretty much really loved these guys um, and did not obstruct them or call them thieves. I thought, well, wow, I need to do more research on this. And mm. I conceived of doing an entire uh, book, more of an academic book. That's the Compensations of Plunder, the one I'm uh, working on right now. But in preparation for understanding better the situation in China with the archaeologist and the art market, I decided that I needed to learn about the rest of the world as well, so I had so- something to compare it against so I could put it in proper context. So I first started teaching a class at my university, American University. I started off with a seminar, of uh, it's called the seminar Indiana Jones in History, and we would read all kinds of books, uh, archaeological expeditions and excavations in Egypt and Peru, all over the world. Um, and then after I had taught that class for three or four years, I turned it into a lecture course, and then I decided I had enough material here where perhaps this could make for an interesting book in which the focus is not purely on China, but the rest of the world with maybe one or two chapters on the situation in China. Um, And Mm -hmm. so that's where I got the motivation to write the book. And the clincher was when Disney announced that they were going to do a a fifth Indiana Jones film. (laughs) And I thought, okay, if they're going to do a fifth Indiana Jones film, I've been teaching and reading and writing about Indiana Jones and history for so long now, this might be a good opportunity opportunity for me to put this stuff in writing.
2: Yeah, indeed. How did you choose the chapters that you did go with? Because I'm, I'm assuming throughout history and all your research, you found many, many, many examples of people going into another area, assuming they could take whatever they want and bringing it back to the uh, to the motherland, for lack of a better word, and throw it in a museum. I mean, even here in this country, in the United States, Native Americans, which were not included in the book, yeah. but... You know, how did you choose what to what to put in here with a, a wealth of information to draw from?
3: Yeah, well, basically, I I, I decided to cast my net wide, and I just, just started thinking from start to finish, what sort of vested interests are there. Um, in any given archaeological expedition. Where's the source of money? Uh, Who helped the archaeologists get into the country? And then where did the artifacts go when they came back? Well, that meant I had to start with the museum. So I thought, okay, I need to learn about the institution of the modern museum. It takes you back to the cabinet of curiosities, the Wunderkammer, um, the Louvre. Uh, Pompeii actually was a a very important part of the story. So that was sort of the beginning point. And then from that point on, I tried to identify At each stage over the next 200 years, what sort of, whose expedition, whose excavation excavation could help illustrate a new development. That was the key. The key was on some sort of a new development. Um, And so that means that there are certain uh, famous archaeologists and expeditions that um, don't get included because they aren't representative of some sort of novel new phenomenon. Um, I remember the guy who stands out the most to me is uh, Flinders uh, Petrie, a very noted Egyptologist Um, Who worked in Egypt for many years? Um, I actually, when I was trying to narrate what happens in Egyptology in the 19th century and the early 20th century, I realized that his career didn't actually illustrate anything brand new that I hadn't been able to illustrate through other people's careers. Um, So that was sort of what guided the selection. So Giovanni Belzoni was one of the the first explorers who did something very new in the first part of the 20th century. Heinrich Schliemann was someone whose conflict with the Ottoman Empire over the antiquities of Troy helped to illustrate one of the first examples of conflict, true conflict, over the possession of an artifact. Um, And eventually, I, I take the story into the end of unilateral Western expeditions when they begin to be obstructed in the 1920s and the 1930s by non-Western peoples. So
2: you mentioned the beginning of the book and museums and how this thing whole kind of got started, it, right in chapter one you talk about the acquisition of antiquities and things to create these and I love that word wondercomer the like just like these collections of amazing things that would just intended to make people just be dazzled when they walked in it was just no logical sense to it mm-hmm. just a whole bunch of crap that somebody could fit in a room <laughs> people could come right. in and say wow you're fancy right um, which actually just turned into museums eventually and. And I'll tell you what: every time we have a chance to talk about museums on this show or any of the shows that I'm on, uh, I really go on a rant, don't I, April? So <laughs>
1: um,
2: I know because I I actually like museums. I can't stand museums. Um, I mean, I like going and learning about things, but the whole thought behind. Not only partially how artifacts were collected, which is what I want to talk to you about, but the display of artifacts and the, you know, just putting things behind glass and saying, don't touch, but look at this. And it creates that sort of looter mentality because it makes me think, well, if I can't have it here, especially with like Native American stuff, I'm just going to go out and find it somewhere else on my own and not tell anybody about it. Mm -hmm. So. What are your thoughts um, based on some of the research that probably probably didn 't make the book? What are your personal thoughts on museums? Where do you think museums should go now if we could just tear the whole institution down and rebuild it and teach people history?
3: Wow, where should we go with museums now uh, to be perfectly honest, I have never really given any consider, any, any consideration <laughs> to that question before
2: well you know just think just thinking about it yeah like where where would you you know given what you know of how museums came about? Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think, personally, Ed, that the, the solution might be if we were just had a blank check?
3: Well, it's going to be difficult, I think, in many cases to to sort of give artifacts back uh, to where they originally came from, um, because you have a lot of issues involved with trying to identify mm-hmm. who, if anyone, actually owned something and under what circumstances was it taken away. Um, Because the first thing that comes to my mind based on the research that I've done, one of the most surprising findings that I had was to discover that when artifacts were removed from non-Western lands, very often all the locals knew what was being removed. It was rarely clandestine. It was rarely Mm -hmm. a secret. Um, It was known what was being taken. And most of the people, if not all of the people who knew, tended to be okay with that. Um, to various degrees. Sometimes they were completely okay with it. Other times they thought, well, you're taking something that I recognize as valuable out of our country as well, but the terms under which you removed it um, are acceptable to me. Uh, that is, we consider it to be legal. You haven't transgressed any of our country's laws. Uh, you found it at your own expense or acquired it at your own expense. I, you, you didn't steal it from someone. Um, and therefore, we recognize that you have a claim on this. Um, and then also, sometimes there was this whole concept, which I refer to as the compensations of plunder. Um, and I use that sort of tongue-in-cheek, uh, suggesting that there were there was the recognition that certain forms of compensation were received by the people, the locals who hosted. Western excavations, in which they obtained resources and forms of capital from the foreign archaeologist that they tended to regard as either equal to or even more valuable than the artifact that than the artifact that was being removed. So I guess that is what all informs my mind when I think about what happens to museums. Mm-hmm. Um, m- museums certainly have. A dark side, and I talk about this in the book. Uh, you know, yeah. they just they justified so much of the removal and transport of art and antiquities around the world, um, and they were very intimately associated with Western imperialism and many of the excesses of Western imperialism. You know, so sort from a bird's eye perspective, museums it's easy to rant about. But what I found is that when you actually go into individual case studies, it becomes much more complex and messy. And it's harder for me to sort of wholeheartedly condemn museums anymore because you realize they're a product of their time and place in so many ways.
1: I'm going to agree with that completely, Chris, and kind of answer your question too, which is, I mean, if you look at the reason Like cabinets of curiosities And then museums were started It was really to educate the public And to show that I mean, yes, it was showing off You know, the wealth of a country And the power And that dynamic But they were places Where people could come And look at stuff And not learn through text panels Mm -hmm. And really carefully constructed Educational forums The way we do it now But it was supposed to be like Look at the world To this general audience Um, And I So I think there's still value in that Um, And I think also one of the things that really comes out in Justin's book is the power dynamics that are at play in the collection of a lot of these antiquities um, and how, and I think some of that, how often it was a power, kind of these conquering nations or imperialist nations over other nations kind of taking their heritage or their artifacts um, and putting them into museums. But I think we're seeing swings in that now. I mean, if you look at the number of countries that have exerted their national rights over objects um, and now the kind of increasing trend towards shared expeditions, ex- exhibitions, sorry, not expeditions. I'm still thinking about the book here, mm-hmm. um, but exhibitions. <laughs> where two con- countries saying, well, here's my stuff. And you want to do an exhibit We well, you have to work with me. And then, There's a change in dynamic Mm -hmm. there. Um, But, you know, I, I really think like the case of the Elgin Marbles that Justin talks about is phenomenal where objects were removed with permission from the controlling country from another country. Everybody knew it was happening. They were okay with it because they didn't care about those artifacts at the time. Because the national entity and identity didn't exist in the same way and didn't exert power and control. And there's still a source of conflict.
3: Right. And I think I also want to follow up on that. I I agree with everything that you're saying. The other issue here is that you actually don't see the first criticisms of the hypocrisy of Western museums until the non-Westerners actually start building their own museums um, and so what that actually reveals is that non-Western peoples – I hate using that term, but because if you want to talk about China and the Middle East and many places, there's only, that's really the only catch-all term you can use uh, – non-Western peoples themselves openly acknowledged that they also believed that the Western Museum was a very admirable, benevolent institution – And it was only when they decided, hey, this is such a great institution that we'll build our own museums, that they then started to see themselves in direct competition with the Westerners for the admirable task of putting things in museums. So it wasn't like the non-Westerners presented an alternative vision to the Western Museum and said, this is hypocritical. It just glorifies your own empire. They said, we fully agree that the museum is a great thing. Uh, but now that we have our own, we'd like some of these artifacts to stay in our museum now. Um, so there was, never, there was never actually really a direct criticism of the whole justification and ideology behind the museum itself.
1: And it ties into our discussion last episode um, about nationalism, and tribalism, where once these countries that were under imperial control got their own freedom and could build their own national identities, then you need these objects. You need a past and you need the archaeological artifacts in the museums to show a past. And so then you get this contest- contestation over ownership and control of really important artifacts
3: Right. And that's what's so important about the time period in which the shift occurs when you start getting obstruction and criticism of Western excavations. Um, It happens in the 1910s and the 1920s um, when you start to see the Ottoman Empire become torn apart um, after World War One, I. I mean, the Ottoman Empire is by far the backdrop for the vast majority of excavations and expeditions by Westerners. And it's only when the old empire is destroyed and new individual states that have never existed before in the history of the world suddenly realize we need a brand new ideology, a brand new national identity from scratch that is different from the old imperial Ottoman identity that they begin to say, these antiquities are going to be our new identity.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, that is a great first start to this show. And we're only through chapter one. So this is going to be a 17 hour <laughs> podcast. <I think>. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, let's go to break. And uh, in the meantime, uh, go check out uh, arcpodnet.com forward slash members and look into supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. We'll be back in a second.
0: Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully it ends up in your hands.
2: All right, welcome back to The Archaeology Show, episode 38. And we are talking to Justin Jacobs about his book, Indiana Jones in History, From Pompeii to the Moon. And we are nowhere near the moon after only one segment. We are uh, still firmly in the past. And we didn't even talk about Pompeii, really. <laughs> but I, I do want to bring up, it's, it's, it was great reading about Pompeii and that excavation. I was, in, um, I was in Naples for three weeks, about two and a half years ago, I think, two years ago. And, uh, you know, we went to the archaeology museum in in Naples because everybody said you got to go to this archaeology museum. It's the most amazing thing you'll ever see. And I'll tell you what. I mean, sure. I was, I guess, seeing a lot of the artifacts and sculptures. I mean, they're monumental sculptures in there, the massive things. But then all the artifacts and stuff, it's neat from a historical standpoint to look at the craftsmanship of something that old and see, wow, look what they were doing. But on the other hand, I didn't really learn anything. Because the way that museum was set up, it was just stuff inside glass. Like they had collections of, you know, beads and mosaics and and a bunch of different things. And they'd all be behind glass. And sure, the artifact is labeled with, it's like a session number. And it might even say what it is or the material it is. But I don't know anything about it. I want to see where it came from, who would have had something like that, a little bit more history. And there just wasn't any information. So that's my, that's the final comment I'll have on my rant about museums, I think.
3: (laughs) uh, well, well, I, I actually will admit, even though in the, in the last segment we were sort of, uh, you know, somewhat defending uh, the enterprise of, of the museum, at least from a historical sense, I will say that I share some of your distress at the way that uh, artifacts are displayed. Um, and it goes back to the original enlightenment mission of trying to show that humankind uh, can exert their dominance over nature and become more of a god over the Mm -hmm. phenomenon of this world than nature itself. I mean, you're, you're showing your mastery over nature by taking something that once had a living function in a social context and you declare that the lifespan, the natural lifespan of this object is dead. Um, and it, it has ended and we will now incubate it in a sterile environment and give it a new function, which is mm-hmm. education of the public. And you change the context of that object um, and it, it, it acquires new meanings that it never had before in its previous context context. Um, and I think maybe I don't get as distressed when I go to museums today as you do, but I think some of that distress I do feel when I go to zoos, which were created on the exact same principle, actually. The zoos were are the museums of the natural world. Um, they are to the nature what museums are to the world of art and antiquities. Uh, You take Mm -hmm. uh, uh, something out of its biological context, you say its natural lifespan has ended, um, and now it's going to be placed in a sterile environment that mankind has recreated uh, better than nature itself. Things don't go extinct here, and you're going to learn from it. The public will learn from it. Um, and I, I think the sterility of that and the artificiality of it, for me at least, is a little more prominent with the zoo than it is for the museum.
2: Uh, you're you're telling me that the uh, the enclosure with the pile of food in the middle and the tree doesn't look like the Serengeti for the lion? I think that's way off-base, Justin. I think that's way off no.
3: Well, the best, okay. zoos, the best zoos try to show that they truly <laughs> recreate the environment. You know, most zoos don't come anywhere near that ideal. Uh, right. but something like, you know, the San Diego Zoo or whatnot. I mean, they'll actually say, yes, we've recreated the Serengeti here. <laughs> so, mm-hmm.
1: One of the things with both zoos and museums is there's uh, creation of value like we're assigning value to objects when we say that they are worthy of display. Like, I mean, obviously lions and tigers are of higher value than the reptile house. Uh, you know, and right, so we, right. we create that premise and museums do the same thing. And I mean, that was one of the things that came out really clearly in your book is just this idea that early in the Indiana Jones movies also is that early archeologists were going in, you're saying value, value, useless, 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 worthless, value, And grabbing those things and taking them away, shoving them places, but kind of obscuring or obliterating. You know, all of this other unvaluable
3: stuff. Right. And it's I, I like the way that you actually say that, because there was a conscious decision was made as to what things that we dug out of the ground are going to be the most value. We're going to value these things more than others. And those values will change over time as well. But one of the consistent features of this process of assigning value to some things and no value to other things is that and, th- and this is where the ugly side of Western imperialism comes in, is that things. Things that were imagined to be related to the uh, civilizational ancestors of Westerners were valued significantly higher than things that were imagined not to be related to the ancestors of Western civilization. So the Greeks and the Romans, if anything can be tied in to the Greeks and the Romans, no matter how indirectly, um, it, 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 it would be assigned a much higher value than something, let's say, that was like an Islamic artifact. Um, and that was seen as being outside the domain of the narrative of Western civilization, and it was undervalued as a result. Um, and you see that ideology be re- uh, get reproduced when the non-westerners build their own museums and have their own archaeologists it was a very long time before ottoman museums even had a muslim artifact on display as well i think the ottoman museum the ottoman imperial museum in constantinople was open for almost 50 years before they had their first muslim artifact exhibit hmm. and they're taking that from the western ideology they're, they're 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 learning how to value their own artifacts based on how the westerners valued the artifacts before them
2: so Without talking about every single chapter in the book, um, I'm wondering, Justin, if you can kind of run us through the progression of the antiquities acquisition trade using uh, the examples from the chapters in your book. And and what I mean by that is, you know, you you have examples that you focus on in different parts of the world for each chapter leading up to the last chapter. And really, I think it can honestly be distilled down to... um, just like examples or step-by-step progression on how the thinking has gone around acquis- uh, antiquities acquisition and and how other countries have actually treated their own antiquities. And I'm wondering if you can, I guess, summarize your entire book in, in a few sentences. <laughs> That's
3: really what I'm asking you to do. Um, <laughs> well, I, okay. So let me try to identify what I would see as the single most important uh, determining factor in how, archaeological excavations and expeditions uh, changed over time. And for me, mm-hmm. if, I, if I can identify only one uh, influence, it would be what were the attitudes of the local peoples towards mm-hmm. the artifacts that were being removed. Um, and if the attitudes – and uh, th- these attitudes you have to distinguish by class as well because sometimes the attitudes of the native educated elites will be different than the uneducated impoverished commoners. And what you find through much of the Middle East in the 19th century is that pretty much everyone uh, across all classes, both the uh, Muslim commoners and the elites, um, don't readily identify with the artifacts that the Westerners are taking and removing to museums in Europe and America. Um, And it's eventually this undergoes a shift in which just the upper classes, the educated elite, the those uh, uh, Ottoman officials who are sending their sons to universities in Europe, um, they will come back from their westernized education and they will be the ones who begin to say, hey, we should have our own museums, we need our own antiquity services, and we should start preserving some of our own antiquities. But they um, regurgitate to a certain degree the exact same ideological agenda that the Westerners had also, which makes sense because they were sent abroad to be educated in Western museums. And so for me, that was sort of the beginning of the age of discontent as I talk about it. Uh, Mm -hmm. The age of content for the Westerners was when they are the only ones who value the artifacts that are being removed. When they start to see competition among their educated elite hosts, then you see the beginning of Conflict, and the conflict is muted at first. Uh, You see your first major conflict with uh, the excavations of Heinrich Schliemann at Troy in the 1870s. Um, But even then, it's not full blown conflict yet. Um, It's only going to be with the advent of World War I, the destruction of the Ottoman Empire, uh, revolutions in China that overthrow the old imperial order, that by the 1920s, you have an educated native class of officials. In all the non-Western countries who are now saying um, it's not enough that we subscribe to your ideology um, and leave our own masses behind. Now we insist that as part of our new national identity, everyone in our country has to be on board with this particular view of our past. Therefore, every artifact is the embodiment of the sweat and blood of the Chinese people, the Egyptian people, the Turkish people, whatever nation it's imagined to be. Um, And at that point, uh, no more compromise is possible because any politician who allows an artifact to leave the country, if that artifact is perceived as the representative of the nation that you want to rule, then it's political suicide to allow it to leave the country Um, And so that's sort of the main variable is the attitudes of the native hosts, uh, both elites and the commoners. When the elites are content to not force their ideology, their westernized ideology on the commoners, you still have a possibility for compromise and negotiation and the compensations of plunder that I talk about can still come into the equation. When the native elite say, no, our entire country has to be on board, we all have to believe in this, then no more compromise is possible. And the Western uh, expeditions are over.
2: You know, you talk about in chapter one, back to museums real fast. Um, it always kind of comes back to museums, doesn't it? Anyway, back <laughs> to museums. Um, it's the ultimate enabler. <laughs> right? Um, right? You talk about how, you know, like pre-Louvre and, and when they were, uh, Napoleon was collecting things, um, you know, some of the museums set up in that area were were really for people to come and learn it. And there was one illustration I remember from the book that that had like artists sitting there looking at these other works of art and learning techniques and learning things from them. And I really like that that ideal. But throughout the rest of the book, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember ever reading anything about any of these other examples where the the, the reason the people taking the antiquities were being fought by or, you know, the reason they were fighting for stuff was for that educational value. It always seemed to be money and, or and or perceived power on one side or the other that somebody was going for. Is that accurate or is that just what I took out of the book?
3: I would say that that's accurate in a very tangible sense. That you know these uh, these artifacts were being removed to Western museums, um, largely for scholarly purposes. You know, uh, a sort of limited circulation among scholars who published esoteric books that only five people in the world were going to read, Mm -hmm. Um, and. But they'd still, and, and it was for the glorification of your own empire, of course, because the greatest empire and the greatest civilization should have intellectual mastery and control over the, all the greatest civilizations of the of, of the ancient world. Um, but also, they continued to justify that was, you know, we talked about the museum as the ultimate enabler, uh, even if you didn't actually take any concrete steps towards. M- making an artifact the centerpiece of a real educational exhibit for the commoners uh, back home, you still said that. And that was always the consistent justification in the public sphere for why we should be able to remove this artifact back home. If we leave it here, it'll be destroyed. It'll be lost to nature or you know d- uh, vandals because the locals don't care. Um, and we care. And we're going to take it back home, preserve it forever, and it'll be put in a museum whose mission is the publication, the free publication of the general public. Now, that's the ideal. The ideal is often not really achieved in practice very often. uh, But nonetheless, that ideal was extremely consistent from about the middle of the 19th century um, all the way up until today. Museums still justify their entire existence and all the money and donations they get on the premise that we are undertaking a benevolent public mission towards the, the general populace. That's why every museum has to have one day out of the month where it's free admission and whatnot, because they have to be able to say this is not just an elite enterprise, which it mostly is. Uh, but they have to have that out. They have to have that excuse that says, no, 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 no. If someone wants to come and be, and be educated, um, we fulfill that mission somehow by having this free day for one hour, you know, once every month or right. whatever it is.
2: Yeah, it's all kind of a smokescreen, though, isn't it? I mean, a lot of bigger, bigger museums have research facilities behind the scenes where people are actually doing, you know, real science and real research, but not just anybody can get back there either.
3: Right, right. And there's many museums that are so large with such enormous collections that only something like one tenth of the entire collection is on display and you'd have to live to 100 years old to actually see everything there. (laughs)
2: Yeah, indeed. I, I finally got to I know you live on the on the East Coast there near Washington, DC, according to your bio. And um I just yeah. got to go to Washington DC for the first time last November. And my wife and I, we visited, I don't know, two or three of the big museums on the on the National Mall there. But just looking at those buildings, you know, I mean, even off site, there's probably stuff stored, but even just in those buildings behind the scenes, you know there's just like a ton of stuff that is not out for people to see. And True. and even knowing, you know, going through and seeing some of that stuff, um, I guess I like the display. Pat, uh, this has turned into a museum podcast, but I like the displays about um, about our own past and our own history because I think that's what um, I think that's what countries should do. I mean, they should have museums to their own history. That being said, uh, years ago when it was traveling around the country, I happened to be going through Dallas. My wife and I did along on the way to somebody else, somewhere else. And we saw the famous Lucy fossils, the Australopithecus afarensis from Ethiopia. Uh-huh. And I don't know the details behind that traveling expedition, but I know that Ethiopia controlled the uh, release of that from their borders very tightly and then controlled the, the touring around. I don't know who got all the money for it, um, I hope that Ethiopia got some of it. But that's what I'd like to see countries do is take charge of their own history, recognize that it's valuable, even if it's not valuable to some people in their own country in some cases, but it's valuable to the rest of the world and put that stuff on tour and charge for it and make some money off of it. And then but educate people in the process. I don't know. I think that's what I'd like to see other countries do. I I
1: think a lot of countries are doing that now. I mean, I know Egypt is doing that with things like King Tut where they really tightly control the release and travel of any of those artifacts and what they've come to the United States. like his mask has come twice Mm -hmm. um, because they, they want to make sure that they're, you know, that's their cultural patrimony.
2: Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Okay. Well um, we're, A little bit uh, close to our break. So before we we really dive into the last part of this book here, um, I think we'll just take the break early so we can have a longer uninterrupted segment on the other side. So uh, take a listen to these messages from the Archaeology Podcast Network, and we will be back shortly Okay, welcome back to our final segment of the Archaeology Show, Episode Thirty Eight, talking with Justin Jacobs about his book Indiana Jones in History. All right, so let's get to Indiana Jones, Justin. Right. Uh, you spend the whole last chapter talking about Indiana Jones, and I think it was—I think this book was actually really well laid out. I don't know how how many times you thought about the outline of a book. I wrote a book a long time ago and really struggled on the uh, order of things, but I think this was really laid out progression leading up to. Okay, how does all this tie into Indiana Jones? And then the only real academic critical breakdown of the entire Indiana Jones franchise that I've ever seen in my entire life, <laughs> and, it was, and it was really well done. Um, so, just break down that that last chapter. Just maybe summarize it for us. Tell us tell us about the franchise. How does Indiana Jones, the franchise, fit into history as far as accuracy goes? And then uh, and then maybe um, you know whatever else you want to add to that.
3: Right. Um, yeah, this was the question that I always wanted to answer. This was the big question is, you know, <laughs> what is the relationship? Because when you're growing up and you think that Indiana Jones is the coolest thing in the world, you I, I, for me, I mm-hmm. always just assumed that there must be some sort of historical context <laughs> or basis for much of what was going on. Um, and so, what, what, what you know, obviously, in addition to the films themselves and several iterations of the uh, 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 screenplays, The uh, scripts for the uh, shows also, I also examine this 125 page transcribed text of the original brainstorming session that was leaked to the Internet. some you know, 10 years ago or something in which George Lucas, Steven Spielberg and Larry Kasdan actually discussed their ideas for the very first Indiana Jones. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's quite revealing. To hear, I mean George Lucas does the vast majority of talking, um, but it's quite revealing to, to to finally gain insight into what their sources were and what their thoughts were, um, and it can be sort of distressing to learn from this brainstorm session that there's very little historical basis for the films whatsoever in this entire. Uh, 125 pages of transcribed text of their conversation. There's not a, there's not a single mention of any identifiable uh, archaeologist from anywhere in history. Um, pretty much all the influences and sources for the ideas about this film came from popular culture and earlier Hollywood you know films. Uh, when you actually uh, get down to, at one point, you have Lucas and Spielberg and Kasdan, um you know, talking about what sources they're they're going to be basing this character on. And I think it's Larry Kasdan at one point who sort of expresses his surprise. So, so basically what we have here is uh, the Bible, a television special on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and some sort of article that Phil Kaufman, who is another guy involved in the uh, screenplay, I believe, um, mm-hmm. uh, an article his mononucleosis doctor wrote back, you know, 20 years ago in the 1950s or whatnot. And okay. you realize how, how thin... The historical basis is um, for the films. Now, there are a few factual accuracies, some that seem deliberate. Uh, they actually sent someone out to do some research, mostly in the later films. Um, but most of the factual accuracies, to me, appear to be ac- uh, somewhat accidental or sort of fortuitous convergences. Um, the, you know, for instance, the fact that Indiana Jones is American. Okay, that actually meshes quite well uh, with what we know of archaeological expeditions in the 1930s. Uh, after World War One. European money and initiative and just the energy for excavations dried up considerably, and it was American money uh, that went out and hired European scholars very often, um, and they were the ones who were in charge. All the money was coming from places like Harvard, the University of Chicago, um, and they replaced many of the old European institutions that were funding archaeological expeditions abroad. So that's fortuitous, but I don't think it's intentional. I mean, this is Hollywood. They want an American hero, so it just happens (laughs) to be American. But nonetheless, it was Americans taking charge by the 1930s. Um, they also get it right that there is this sort of uneasy relationship between archaeologists and intelligence agencies. I have a whole chapter called Scholars at War, in which I show sort of the longstanding association of archaeologists. Um, With the intelligence agencies, the militaries and intelligence Mm -hmm. agencies of their home governments, and basically the same skills that are useful for an archaeological excavation, uh, cartography, um, or, you know, uh, leadership abilities over a large work team, uh, knowledge of local customs, languages, all sorts of these sorts, you know, of these things. Um, Indiana Jones also has a history with intelligence agencies in the very first film. Right. It's, it's U.S. Army intelligence that approaches him when they want to learn more about the Ark. Um, and then in the fourth film, it's also revealed that he had worked for the CIA. He was in Berlin during the Cold War and whatnot. Uh, you know, a lot of that actually uh, uh, jives with, with what we know of archaeological mm-hmm. expeditions uh, historically. They, they, they would turn over the intelligence that they collected on foreign lands to the, company, to the countries um, that sponsored them. There was also in the third Indiana Jones, they have a a scene that takes place in the Republic of Hatay, (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, in which the the local pasha or sultan or ruler um, exchanges uh, help for an expedition for the Nazis – Um, in exchange for a Rolls Royce. It's a very sort of a humorous scene in the film. And I used to always think that the Republic of Hatay must have been a made-up country. Um, And it turns out that it actually existed for only like six months or so during the exact time that that movie took place. Absolutely, someone went out, got out an encyclopedia um, and and looked this up. Um, But pretty much everything else, you find that there's almost no historical basis for the films. In fact, they get... Uh, certain fundamental aspects of the film completely wrong. Uh, for instance, the first film, uh, the, the the year in which it's supposed to be set is 1936, when Indiana Jones goes to the jungles of South America, outruns the boulder. Um, you know that that is highlighted as 1936. Um, mm-hmm. By 1936, the obstruction of Western unilateral expeditions is pretty much complete. Uh, it begins with King Tut. Uh, the tomb of, of Tutankhamun from 1922 to 1924, um, and with James Henry Breasted uh, doing having his hand in many excavations throughout the Middle East, Breasted, working for the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute, is pretty much kicked out. Of all the major Middle Eastern countries by 1935. Uh, The Chinese have kicked out all foreign explorers by 1931. Uh, 1936 is an inherently implausible date for anyone, Nazis or Indiana Jones to be in a place like Egypt. Eventually, the action takes place in Egypt in the first Indiana Jones. Um, You cannot act with impunity. Um, with the freedom of movement that the Nazis and in Indiana Jones have in Egypt in 1936. Uh, well, it's plus, simply not. Wrong.
2: Plus, plus we all know that all the boulders had already been outrun by that point. I mean, that's right.
3: That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of the other things uh, that, you know, some major things that they get wrong, the Nazis, the Nazis were uh, in both the first film and the third film, they're looking for Jewish and Christian artifacts, specifically Mm -hmm. things that are believed to have religious powers that go back to the ancient Hebrews and the medieval Christians. Uh, In the first film, it's the Lost Ark, and then it's the Holy Grail. Um, The Nazis would never have been looking, would never have been looking for or would have believed in the efficacy of Christian or Jewish artifacts. Um, They were believers in one of two Aspects of antiquity. Uh, Heinrich Himmler, who was in charge of many of of the scholarly operations and the Nazis own archaeologists who went out and did their own expeditions. Heinrich Himmler was a believer in the power of the Nordic branch of the Aryan race. All right. He thought that there was a Nordic migration of the wonderful Aryan race that uh, had some ancient lore in the Scandinavian countries and all over Europe. And it needed to be recovered as a way for the German people to get back in touch with their glorious ancestry. Uh, Hitler represented the other area of fascination from the Nazi elite. It was uh, in stark disagreement with Himmler. Uh, Hitler was a admirer of the Greeks and Romans. In that sense, he was very conventional, just like every ruler, every major European ruler since Napoleon. Uh, Hitler uh, was a staunch devotee of the Greeks and Romans. And he actually looked at what Himmler was doing and he was saying, this is an embarrassment. Uh, the Greeks and Romans already had these glorious civilizations, while our Nordic Aryan ancestors were still living in mud huts. Um, and he thought what Himmler was doing was an embarrassment. Um, but they were quite hostile, as you would imagine, obviously, towards Jewish culture and Jewish beliefs, Jewish religion, but also towards Christianity. There wasn't a yeah. lot of love for Christianity in Nazi circles. So the idea that they would either you know go after these sort of uh, Jewish and Christian artifacts, much less believe that they actually had magical powers, um, doesn't accord with what we know of Nazi ideology.
2: Well, going back to the historical inaccuracies of Indiana Jones, my my more fundamental question about this is, uh, do we only care so much because of what he represents to actual archaeologists right now? As as the field of, let's say, contract archaeology, at least in the United States, was really born in the 1970s. I mean, really 1966, but actually the 1970s was when it really took off and people started more and more people started just becoming archaeologists and working in the field of this, uh, the contract archaeology. I know tons of people of the ages of maybe between like 35 and 45 or 50 right now that would say they got into archaeology because Indiana Jones and you know, because of their, I mean, just like you mentioned just at the beginning, this fascination with Indiana Jones. So if we didn't have that, would we care that it was historically inaccurate? And my, my one example is that is like the mummy with Brendan Fraser. That is not a movie we look back to and say, "Wow, that is way historically inaccurate." We just it's a given. We don't care. It's Brendan Fraser being an archaeologist and looking absolutely ridiculous or National Treasure with Nicolas Cage, like we all know that none of that is true or at least the government has suppressed the truth of that new movie. So, right. Right. Um, right. So, you know, breaking down the historical inaccuracies what's the what's the real value here when when should they have should they have made it historically accurate or should they have made a movie for hollywood that makes millions of dollars
3: see i think actually this is a really interesting point that you make i think one of the problems with the film if you if you know anything about the history of archaeology is that mm-hmm. the film sort of blurs the lines intentionally i don't think the filmmakers actually have any real knowledge of the history of the archaeological profession themselves but nonetheless mm-hmm. they still have pretensions of presenting it as if there is some historical truth to it. I mean, they select actual wow. dates, they select a, you know, historical background. And if you know nothing about the history of archaeology, it makes sense. They said, oh, 1930s, Egypt, um, you know, uh, the, the Ark, the Holy Grail, uh, these sorts of things. That seems like it makes sense Um, And so it has pretensions to be historically accurate, but what it's actually presenting, uh, the films present the fantasy of the age of Western archaeology as it once was before the natives ruined all the fun and crashed the party and started (laughs) to say that, hey, we can do that as well. You can't remove this stuff. We have our own Indiana Jones. Um, Once that happened – The escapist consumer adventure fantasy ended, and that fantasy ends. This is the irony of the whole thing to me, is that that fantasy ends in the 1920s and 1930s, and the Indiana Jones films are set right at the end. Once the reality of Western archaeological expeditions, being able to do whatever you want with virtual impunity, once that's over, the Indiana Jones myth is born almost immediately to fill the void um, and i think that's the appeal of it is that it has just enough historical uh, aspects to it that we can believe that this was really what it was like and it's what we want to believe we white westerners who can identify with indiana jones as our own avatar on screen he 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 but he, he, he you know he sort of represents archaeology More like in the 19th century. You know, if you really want to find an era in which you can do what Indiana Jones is doing, you need to go back almost to the 1860s, 1850s, the -hmm. middle of the 19th century before you can do what he does.
2: So what you're saying is they got too close. They just got if they just if they'd thrown aliens in in the first movie, then nobody would buy it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, You know, if they if if they made it absurd from the beginning, like, you know, the Brendan Fraser and the mummies and whatnot, in which no one assumes there's any historical accuracy whatsoever. Then we wouldn't have any sort of disappointment or conflict, you know, uh, with the realization that the history is completely wrong. I absolutely Mm -hmm. agree with that.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to play complete devil's advocate here uh, <laughs> because my takeaway, um, especially, so I watched a bunch of the YouTube videos, which, by the way, are phenomenal. I oh, took a break from me. my real world and watched them/slash listened them while painting my house. It was great; it made everything <laughs> so much happier for me. But one of the takeaways I was kind of getting from this is that yes, the facts of Indiana Jones are not accurate. But the representational ideal and the presented politics and kind of layout of it, well, is unintentionally pretty accurate. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a Mm -hmm. lot of things about constructing nationalism using artifacts Um, and sort of this the taking to put in a museum. You talk about the good guy scenario. Well, If you take it and put in a museum, it's okay. If you take it and put it in your house, it's bad. Um, right. And so there's all of these kind of tropes and broad almost stereotypes about archaeologists and the history of archaeology and kind of the pessimistic dark side that we as archaeologists mm-hmm. really yeah. don't like to talk about that are actually really embedded into the Indiana Jones movies. But I think a lot of people don't pick up on because that's the part that, you know, we don't learn about. And it's overlaid by all the glitz and glamour and adventure of, you know, yeah, the 19th century archaeologists who got to go and tromp through Egypt on camels and, you know, have these crazy adventures that we all kind of wish we still could do while recognizing they're problematic
3: yeah, I think that's actually a really fair point, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, one of the, that and that's one of the enduring appeals for me uh, of Indiana Jones in history as sort of a, an intellectual research project for me is that the films actually do throw into the mix all kinds of relevant tropes and themes and things that did happen in one form or another. Um, Now, the films, Hollywood takes them and throws them sort of into this blender and you get this glorious mishmash of fact and no fact and, you know, misrepresentations and whatnot. But the films do actually um, reveal so many of the major themes of archaeological expeditions. Um, Yeah, no, I actually I think that's a very fair point. And one thing that I do point out in the book when I discuss these films is that although as a historian to come at the films from a historical perspective, it's a little disappointing to see how little they seem to actually know. Um, It's interesting to see how much they've unconsciously sort of absorbed and then regurgitated um, through their film. Um, But, you know, the goal of the film is to entertain. And at one point, one of the screenwriters even (laughs) says that it's supposed to be fun. Um, You know, it's it's not a documentary. And, you know, if you if you do something that's too closely reflective of historical realities, then it's possible that the fun factor will be diminished. Um, And in the end, people go to see Indiana Jones because they do want an escapist consumer fantasy.
2: All right. So in the last couple of minutes of this uh, podcast, Justin, why don't you just tell me your dreams here, your hopes and dreams? If they call you and say, we want you to be the historical consultant on the fifth Indiana Jones movie that we alluded to at the beginning of the show, how would you like
3: to see that movie go? Uh, I have thought about this many, many times. And in fact, I'm, I'm giving a talk at the Smithsonian next week uh, nice. where, where I'm going to finally lay out my vision of uh, ho- ho- uh, Hollywood fact versus fiction. Did they get it right? I have given some thought to this and I have come up with the best answer that I can think of that m- that marries sort of historical accuracy with the fun and. Um, mm-hmm. All right, so the, the problem with the, fifth, with, with, with the forthcoming fifth film is that they want to use Harrison Ford, um, and so they need to make sure that the timing of the film is in accord with his age. Now, he was in the last film, which came out, what, it's going to be like a 12-year uh, gap between the two films that took mm-hmm. place in the, in the mid-1950s. Um, So this one's going to have to take place around 1970 or so uh, if we're going to maintain consistency with Harrison Ford's age. That's difficult because the age of unilateral Western expeditions is over by the 1930s, as we've already talked about. So what can they do? Well – Um, the Chinese can come to the rescue here. The terracotta warriors is one of the most remarkable discoveries ever made. I think it's 1971 or 1973. It's right in the range of when this Indiana Jones film should be. Um, And you also, in this day and age, Hollywood films, they want the China market, right? Uh, They want Mm -hmm. to be able to cast Chinese characters so they can have global appeal. Um, Some sort of storyline, and I haven't worked out the details yet, but some sort of storyline involving Indiana Jones- Working together with a Chinese counterpart, a Chinese archaeological counterpart, of which there have been perfectly respectably trained Chinese archaeologists for 50 years by the time the terracotta warriors are discovered, Um, and the two of them would somehow work together to either... I don't know if they can discover the terracotta warriors because they're discovered by a peasant farmer. Um, But perhaps they will secure the site. They will prevent them from being looted by some sinister uh, evil uh, villain, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, whatever it might be. But that it for me is, would be a wonderful basic storyline for the film. It can revolve around the terracotta warriors. And then you would also have, you would avoid the problem of severe political incorrectness. It's not just political incorrectness. I mean, it, you know, attitude should be changing by now. Uh, There should be a archaeological equal to Indiana Jones whose skin is not white, not because we need to be politically correct, but because that is the reality of the profession for 50, 60, maybe even 80 years if you're talking about the Ottoman Empire um, in the history of archaeology. So it just makes sense. It also makes good marketing sense for a global audience and the Chinese market.
2: Indeed, I figured if he were going for ultimate historical accuracy, you'd have had him starting a starting a CRM firm, sharing a hotel room with like three other people, and then just writing reports into obscurity until he dies. <laughs> I figured oh, that <laughs> that is the ultimate. <laughs> yeah, nobody will watch that. Um, nobody likes to watch it in real life. Okay, so. Well, thanks a lot, Justin. This has been a fascinating interview. We always love talking about Indiana Jones, especially when you know we we all complain about Indiana Jones, but we yet we still secretly love him. I think I've, I just feel I don't know. Uh, it's a, it's unfortunate that Indiana Jones is kind of an ambassador for archaeology, and nobody stepped up to take that place from a cinematic standpoint. Um, we we really we really desperately need that for the next generation of of archaeologists. So. Uh, briefly, I, I mentioned the next book you've got coming down the line. What's the timeline on that?
3: Uh, the Compensations and Plunder How China Lost Its Treasures. I'm uh, yeah. I'm, on, I'm on sabbatical this year, and I'm trying to finish a first draft by the end of the summer. Um, it looks like I should be able to do it. Okay. I'm, on, I'm on chapter two now, about four more chapters to go. Um, ideally, I can actually, you know after it goes through peer review and all that, I think I can probably get it to come out uh, by 2020 as well, by the time the film comes out. Awesome.
2: Sounds good. Well, Thanks a lot, Justin. And uh, we'll have links to this book and your videos and everything else we can find in the show notes. And uh, hopefully we can have you back on again to talk about that next book when we're still rocking and rolling in a few years.
3: I would love to. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed this.
2: Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ARCPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning. Keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective.
1: This has been a
3: presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more.
0: You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling
3: up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups
2: on the block.